0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the third annual Look Back episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast. I had this idea a couple years ago to, to do something that I'm not sure anyone else really has the ability to do. The, the, the way I, I mean, without a lot more work uh, anyway, that I have this interesting archive that is, it, it's not so dense that one person can't go through it given enough time. So, what I came up with a couple of years ago is you know, while everyone else is looking back uh, and sort of recapping the year that just happened, what I do is look back and recap the year that happened 10 years ago. So as we are on the brink of entering the year 2018, now is the time to look back to the year that was 2008. Uh, It was a big one. You might actually remember that year. A lot of things happened. And so uh, we're going to take a look at that, get some context, use the benefits of 2020 hindsight, see what sort of insights we can glean from it, and, and just generally take in the greater context that is the political era we are in rather than wallowing constantly in the day-to-day or even the week-to-week or month-to-month that, it, you know, in this particular day and age it is so condensed that uh, we all feel like time is running more slowly than normal. So 2008 uh, didn't take long to kick off with, uh, with a real start. It, it was just January 3rd when the very first Democratic primary Uh, Not not a primary election, but they had a caucus. Uh, Iowa always caucuses first, and then New Hampshire has the first primary. They both like to brag about being first. But January 3rd, 2008, was the very first time people got to express their opinion about the primary election that ended up being between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. So let's have a listen to the Young Turks as they are calling that election As It Happens.
1: I'm prepared, not the network. I'm going to call it. Wow, we have a call. Yeah, Barack Obama's going to win the Iowa caucus.
2: Wow, there it is. Uh, we Slash are maybe not.
1: No, 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 no. It's a, a, I mean, it's been a steady climb since those first numbers. Uh, you know, we're pushing 60% now. Uh, of, of the votes are in in fact we're over 60 percent we're coming in on 70 percent that lead has done nothing but increase it's now a three and a half percent lead uh with over 60 percent of the precincts reporting he's going to win uh it's a question i mean i don't know whether he's going to win by two three four five but he's going to win and that's a very big story and the race for second between hillary and john edwards is still too close to call with edwards slightly ahead at this point
2: i'm calling it edwards with the point two two percent lead over hillary clinton will come in second
1: <laughs> that's
2: that's a bolder that's bolder no question no i'm playing seriously
1: uh, <laughs> bill richardson will finish fourth
2: <laughs> that's that is definitely true
1: i really see hillary as uh, as 1990 mike tyson mike tyson in her prime i mean she's the favorite uh it was going to be hard to beat her and i you don't i, beat tell her. You, I thought that last summer I didn't think that since
3: September or
1: October. Well, uh, and let me finish it out, and then i because um, I'm curious. Yeah, I, I, I there's an excellent chance I'm wrong, but just that she clearly can be beaten. Buster Douglas beat Mike Tyson, but he had to knock him down three times. And, like, you can't, she's not done. You don't knock her out with one punch. You're going to have to come back and knock her down again, and you're going to have to eventually knock out her mouthpiece, and she's going to have to be crawling around the floor in South Carolina trying to find her mouthpiece.
2: I think this night might have been historic, and because... I was at least in my mind a third of who, what, what determines president. And Obama had a convincing victory here. So he's on his way. It doesn't mean he's going to win. It doesn't, you know, but he just won a third of the relevant portion of this campaign. So, and the Democrat is definitely more likely to win than the Republican. Much more likely. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it is more likely. So tonight, we might have seen the beginning of what will be our first black president yeah, a, okay and that, that's not a
1: small thing our first real black president as opposed to every single black president we've had in film and tv for the last 20 years <laughs> that's right <laughs>
0: Before we get too deep into this, let me just say you don't have to worry. This is not a nostalgia fest about the phenomenon that was the Obama campaign throughout 2008. I I have made an episode like that. That's the episode I made that came out immediately after the election in 2008, and I think it was appropriate at the time. But to do anything along those lines now, I don't think would be good for anyone's mental health to, uh, to, to wallow that thoroughly in, in, a, uh, in a time that is so thoroughly bygone that it, it hardly fits with anything we uh, understand about politics today. So don't worry about that. The next clip, though, is still about the election, and I, I find this one really interesting because it's about Hillary Clinton and superdelegates. And I don't know about you, but I didn't even remember that she had basically the exact same strategy in 2008 about superdelegates as she did in this this past primary election in 2015-16. She basically planned to lock up all the superdelegates early and use that as sort of a pseudo-momentum mo- to, to create this air of of inevitability about her candidacy. And, and you know, she probably would have, you know, had that work, except for, as I said, the phenomenon that was Obama's. You know, no one saw that coming, including her. So uh, let's listen to this clip about Hillary Clinton and superdelegates. This is being talked about uh, just a month or two later on Super Tuesday during the primary campaign.
4: Here's what I think is really going on behind the scenes. The bottom line is that I think both would agree it's highly unlikely, both sides would agree that it's highly unlikely that Hillary Clinton is going to finish this primary season with a lead in pledged delegates. Virtually impossible. The game for Hillary Clinton is to somehow keep her uh, the distance behind that she is as minimal as possible the highest number they could probably expect is be to be behind by maybe thirty pledged delegates it could be as many as two hundred now the key difference here is this if it's a relatively small and manageable number which may just be a pipe dream in the in, in the in for the clinton camp but that's what they're focusing on they will then argue that they are free to use the superdelegates to try to somehow wrest the nomination from barack obama even though he led in pledged delegates but the bigger that number gets politically, strategically, the more difficult it would get for Hillary Clinton to rely successfully on superdelegates, because if she did so and somehow managed to take the nomination that way, she would unloose uh, a real firestorm within the Democratic Party.
0: Now, you're probably aware a lot of negative things have been said about the superdelegate system in the Democratic Party over the last couple of years, rightfully so. Uh, it's really easy to find the negative parts of it. It's fundamentally undemocratic. People just hate that on an instinctual level when they find out the details of it. And, you know, more in a sort of nuanced way, it opens the door to these kind of backroom deals and influenced peddling and just the stuff that people hate the most about politics are sort of exemplified in the superdelegate system. And so, yeah, there's a lot of negative things to say about it. And it's taken me this entire 10 years to finally hear one argument defending Clinton's strategy to go after superdelegates as her sort of front line of attack in uh, both of these major campaigns of hers. And it's, it's not a winning argument for me, but I can at least respect it on some level. And it went basically like this, that Hillary Clinton, as a woman, due to institutional sexism, was not going to be able to run a campaign like everyone else. And she had to play to her strengths, work within the system, use the rules as they are, and play to her strengths. And her strengths are... I mean, I think the person making this argument used nicer words, I just don't remember what they are, but backroom deals and influence peddling. Like, she's really good at that, and that doesn't have to be nefarious. That really is part of politics, knowing people, being friends with them, being cordial with them, making deals, I'll help you out, you help me out. Like, that really is how politics has traditionally worked. So that's not necessarily bad. But I think it works better as a governing strategy than as an election strategy. Because when you hear about that in terms of an election, it sounds absolutely filthy. When you hear of it in terms of governing, you think more like, all right, I mean, I guess that's how compromises happen. But when you're locking up superdelegate votes before the election has even begun, then it's, it just feels sleazy. So I think, I think that's the, the you know the problem that she ran into with, with her campaigns i mean just one of many but that these kinds of like her strengths played into the parts of politics that people hate the most and so if you really liked hillary clinton then you were perfectly happy to overlook those things and understand that it's just part of how the game is played and if you either didn't like her or you know were sort of in the middle on clinton and you heard about that, you're like, oh, Jesus, it's, it's all the stuff I feared most that she's an insider and she's wheeling and dealing and pulling strings and, uh, you know, trying to get herself ahead instead of just winning on the merits. So that, that's, I don't know, that, that's my using hindsight and newer analysis and understanding. I, I can both totally understand why she did it and not really falter for it and even appreciate that. As a woman, she decided it was important to take a different tack than a traditional male politician would probably take, use her strengths. But I think in terms, uh, well, I think in a lot of ways it backfired and, and, you know, ended up not working out generally anyway. And just for the historical update on this. The Democratic Party actually voted to overhaul their superdelegate system. Frankly, I can't believe they didn't decide to get rid of it entirely. They came to some sort of bizarro compromise, and now two-thirds of the superdelegates are bound to vote the way their states do, while one-third are still able to vote for whoever they want. Go figure. Now, this next clip, I don't think it requires a whole lot of introduction. It's, it's Rachel Maddow talking with a political commentator. I, I'm sorry, I don't know his name. And they're discussing the candidacy of Mike Huckabee. And what ends up being said and, and, and the insights being gleaned from the Huckabee campaign, I think, are very interesting in light of recent events.
5: religious people in this country, you know, rank and file, just people out there, you know, they may be social conservatives, but that doesn't mean they necessarily, you know, support sort of country club uh, Republican economics.
6: Sure. Well, that was the whole, I mean, that was the whole idea that we all kind of, I think, came to a real realization about in 2004. And for some smarter people, even earlier, this idea that people who are voting on social conservative wedge wedge issues for the Republican Party are being driven to do that by people who have actually no interest in those social conservative web wedge issues at all. They only have economic country club economic issues uh, that, that are driving the real decisions in the Republican Party. And they trot out all this social stuff and all these wedge issues and all this hate the gays, hate the brown people stuff uh, in order to mobilize working class people to vote against their economic interests to vote for the Republican Party.
5: That's right. And what was so amazing about this New York Times article was that at the very bottom you had Grover Norquist saying he just wished that Mike Huckabee would go revive the Christian coalition and get the get religious conservatives to keep voting for what Norquist called the Reagan Goldwater coalition. Which really what he was saying was I wish Mike Huckabee would just go get religious working class social conservatives to keep voting against their economic interests <laughs> for for basically, you know, corporate interests in Washington. And the you know, the other thing that was d- disappointing at least for Last night, in the coverage of all this, was that all you heard about on TV was that Mike Huckabee was a religious conservative and he won because he was a religious social conservative. Now, obviously, that played a, a big role for him, but almost nobody mentioned... Almost nobody mentioned that the real thing that differentiated this candidate from other Republican candidates was that he was talking about issues of economic class, and I think that's that's a shame. But I think it's 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 I guess expected from a from a a, a beltway media mm. that that just is not really interested in these issues, and in many cases, for many different reasons. Uh, going from corporate ownership of the media to the fact that most people in the media are of the upper class. You know, most people in the Beltway media just aren't interested in these issues. Sure.
6: And, and even in the face of all of the evidence, I mean, when you go to if you go to Iowa GOP.org today and you look at the map of where each candidate in the Republican caucuses won, where they won. Um, the, everybody had said, you know, oh, Mike Huckabee will only win that upper northwest corner with all of the homeschoolers and the social social conservatives. That's not true at all. Mitt, Mitt Romney won won a few far west counties, and and Mike Huckabee was completely locked up almost the entire map of Iowa. And and it's not at all. It what actually happened doesn't fit that narrative of, of he's just mobilizing the religious people. Um, it 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 makes much more sense to 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 see that his victory was because of the resonance of his of his very pithy line when he said, you know, I think people would rather vote for a guy who they could imagine working with rather than vote for a guy who they could imagine laying them off.
5: But that's And that's exactly right. And, 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 you know, again, the thing is that many of his voters might be religious voters. But but not all of them but well not all of them but even the religious voters right even the religious many religious voters are not what you'd call country club republican you know don't subscribe to the country club republican economic agenda yeah. and i think that is the real wedge in the republican party i think that pr- poses potentially huge upsides for populist politicians of both parties
0: An opening for economically populist candidates in both parties, indeed. And just to put an even finer point on that, here's a quick reminder that, uh, in case you forgot or never knew, that at the same time as the Great Recession was hitting and people were being shocked to their core at the collapse of the economy, John McCain couldn't remember how many houses he owned
7: Democrats are making hay of John McCain's many houses and the fact that he didn't know exactly how many he owns. Well, he may not be the only one. According to the National Association of Realtors, one third of all sales are of vacation or investment homes. So for you second and third and fourth homeowners, our humorist Brian Unger offers this help.
8: Nothing gives a person greater joy and pride than owning a home. A place to call your own. Your own yard. Your own driveway. Your own dog in that driveway. That'll bite anyone who trespasses into that yard of that house you call home. Home ownership. It's the American dream. But that dream can turn into a nightmare when you can't remember how many homes you own. Imagine the pain and frustration of losing track of how many zip codes you live in. Is it one? Is it seven? A condo or a shack down by the river? How many homes do I own? How many do I own? Real Estate Amnesia, REA, not being able to remember the number of homes you own is the leading cause of real estate anxiety next to homelessness, and foreclosure. For those who suffer mild to severe bouts of REA, the Aspen Center for Real Estate Amnesia can help. It's a treatment center staffed by fully accredited real estate therapists who accompany sufferers of REA on walking tours of their own homes. City by city, house by house, you'll rediscover the magic of finding your first dream home. The summer home on Martha's Vineyard, that ski house in Telluride, the slum you rent to college students in Columbus, Ohio. You've worked so hard to collect these houses, so why forget them? Can't remember how many bathrooms you own? Don't know where the circuit box is in the Adirondack Lake House? The Aspen Center for Real Estate Amnesia can help with that too. Room by room, from fixture to faucet, from pantry to pool, from broom closet to bowling alley, we'll help you remember every inch of the awesome real estate you possess. The Aspen Center for Real Estate Amnesia, with new facilities in East Hampton and Boca Raton. Because on the road to prosperity, sometimes it's hard to remember your address And that is today's Hunger Report. I'm Brian Unger.
0: Now, just to sort of cap off the whole election coverage, we, of course, have to mention the choosing of the vice presidents. Now, Obama choosing Biden, not very noteworthy, but pretty much the only memorable part of that was that Biden referred to Obama as a uh, clean and articulate, which, you know, it's just sort of a face palmy kind of way to compliment a black dude. On the other hand, John McCain made one of the most uh, noteworthy vice presidential picks that anyone can remember. And, you know, we're not going to go in and rehash the whole campaign and everything about Sarah Palin, but uh, this is at least how the news was responding at the time. For many
9: people, John McCain's pick for running mate of Alaska Governor Sarah Palin, an opponent of abortion rights, gay rights, and gun control, seemed a fairly overt effort to placate the Republican Party base. Not so for pundits and reporters, fully committed as they are to the storyline of McCain as a fiercely independent politician forever breaking with his party. The day after the announcement, a Washington Post headline declared, with pick, McCain reclaims his maverick image. The following day, a Post subhead was was fellow Maverick survived McCain's thorough vetting process, aides say. On NBC's Chris Matthews show, reporter Nora O'Donnell asserted, quote, he's trying to recapture the Maverick label, close quote. Fellow panelist Howard Feynman of Newsweek weighed in, quote, sure, it's risky, but he had to shake things up. And as his top advisor told me, this is a Maverick picking a Maverick, close quote. O'Donnell later added, quote, all the headlines in the papers were Maverick chooses Maverick. McCain couldn't be happier with the headlines the day after, close quote. On NBC's Meet the Press, reporter Andrea Mitchell showcased the disengagement of that ubiquitous term from any general understood meaning. She first explained that with the Palin pick, McCain has returned to the original John McCain, the Maverick. But her explanation was actually evidence of the opposite. She explained that McCain had wanted to nominate Senator Joe Lieberman, but that was shot down by the conservative base. In other words words, in case you missed it, for the corporate press, John McCain is a maverick just because he's John
0: McCain. Now, to just set the election aside for a minute, meanwhile, as all that was going on, I, I came across this clip that sounds eerily modern. It's about the little piece of legislation that could, but somehow hasn't yet
7: the dream act my my future is so uncertain and so unbelievably sad that i think to myself well why should i try you know like harder i just give up on that good night <clears throat> sorry I shouldn't give up, because a lot of people don't, and the fact that I do really hurts me. Um, None of my friends know. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't talk to anybody about it, because it's really embarrassing for me to say that that I'm such a quitter.
10: What happened to Martha is she saw graduation approaching, and after it, nothing. The blankness of her future, suddenly only weeks away, drained the fight right out of her. Her entire college career seemed like a mean joke. She had exhausted herself, working twice as hard as most of her classmates to get a UCLA education, plus waitressing, plus the commute, plus cooking and cleaning when her parents were working, which was most of the time. And for what? She had no way to pay for a medical degree, and no hope of becoming a licensed doctor if she did. There's a very simple solution to all of this. A bill called the DREAM Act would offer conditional citizenship to those few kids, like Martha, who grow up in the United States and make it to college or the military. If they get a degree or finish their service, they become full citizens. By 2004, the Senate version of the DREAM Act had actually picked up 47 co-sponsors. But the DREAM Act keeps getting bogged down in immigration politics, tacked onto a bunch of big, messy immigration proposals that nobody in Congress could agree on. Earlier this year, the DREAM Act was introduced again in the House and Senate. How would your working life change if you became a, a legal resident or a, a citizen tomorrow? Wow,
7: the possibilities are endless. The sky's the limit. I mean, I could take any job I wanted, and I'm good at a lot of things. I mean, I could take any job at any lab. I could, do, I could work for UCLA. Um... Sometimes I think, well, what if it's not enough that, that I'll still be unhappy? But the more I think about it, that's not a possibility. I mean, yes, a green card is not going to buy you happiness, but it's going to buy you a lot of peace of mind. It really is. You know, just being able to work with dignity.
0: Now, by this time in mid-2008, all of the horrors of the torture that America committed in places like Abu Ghraib had been revealed before, but it wasn't until about now that we learned where those torture techniques came from. You know, they had been argued away as a few bad apples, etc., etc. It turns out it was a lot more systemic than that, and uh, and we got those torture techniques from a place you may not suspect.
2: We found out the manual that uh, we were using Guantanamo Bay and then eventually in Iraq and Abu Ghraib and and Afghanistan that led to all the detainee abuse, otherwise known as torture, and it is a 1957 document, um, and it is, turns out we have found the original source for it. We thought it was from uh, SERE, which is our Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, uh... that we teach our own soldiers uh... in case they get captured and they're gonna get tortured uh... well that is true but it turns out it comes from somewhere else uh... to s-e-r-e uh... where it comes from is a chinese communist manual on how to torture people Um and we got this in nineteen fifty seven and turned it into a document on how to survive chinese torture so we forgot its original origins and we didn't went down to Guantanamo in fact they took the exact document they removed the title which was you know basically chinese torture system and they taught it to the interrogators to the american interrogators down in guantanamo bay and then it spread like i said to iraq and afghanistan we have been torturing people with the ways that we were trying to avoid in the first place from the communist chinese the way that they were torturing people and get a load of this this is a very very important twist to it. The point of the Chinese torture was not to elicit correct information. It was to elicit false confessions. They wanted to capture our soldiers and when they did uh they wanted to torture them to the point where they would say America's, you know, terrible and the Chinese are right and we wish the whole uh world ran on communists. They knew that the American soldiers didn't believe that or any soldiers that they had captured. But they wanted to devise a torture system that would purposely give them false intelligence or false confessions. That's the system we put in place. And by the way, we did get false intelligence from it. We we nearly buried someone alive, and he told us, "Oh yeah, yeah. What do you need to know? You want to know that Iraq and nine eleven are correct connected? Yes, they're connected." Later, we found out that that information was false. But we shouldn't be surprised because we used torture tactics that the Chinese communists used. To per- in essence, particularly, not in essence, completely to get false information. this is unbelievable and outs- outrageous and and here's the thing: we knew it was torture, but this makes it crystal clear, it is indisputable. We literally took it right from a document that said, How you torture people, and it was written originally by the Chinese. Who again? Uh, let me repeat for the eighth time: were communists. So it's become circular, where we've come around and become the things that we despised. We've become our worst enemies. I mean, and now, how can the Republicans, knowing where this document come came from, possibly still deny that we tortured people? But they will, and the Rush Limbaugh's of the world will say, "Oh, it was just a bunch of frat boy." Pranks and uh, no big deal. And when the Chinese did it to us, we we're like, our torture unacceptable. How could they possibly do this? Man, now here's the thing: Are they gonna let people get away with this? Number one, laws have clearly been broken. The president authorized illegal torture. It's illegal, not under international law. It is under international law as well. But more importantly, in this case, under U.S. law, it's the War Crimes Act of 1996, is anyone going to be punished for ordering torture on the name of America and breaking our federal laws? You know the answer to that. I know the answer to that is no way, because the Democrats are the weakest, worst party in American history, and they would never dare challenge the president on something as absolutely, positively clear as this. I mean, date, impeach. Clinton over oral sex, we're torturing people left and right, and we've absolutely sullied the name of America throughout the world, and we've become despised because of George Bush and his torture tactics that he borrowed from the communists in 1957, and no one is going to get punished for it.
0: So the general election is in full swing now. We're getting towards the end of the year. It's September now. And keep in mind that the housing crisis has been going on for a year at this point. And it just takes until September 2008 for that shaky foundation to finally crumble. And it turns into a full-blown banking crisis. So that is uh, mid-September 2008. The election is going on. And The Daily Show does their normal bang-up job of uh, sort of wrapping up all the politicians' responses.
11: While well, the crisis on Wall Street will ultimately affect millions of Americans yesterday, the crisis affected four Americans in a deeply
12: personal way. The American economy is in a crisis. The most serious financial crisis that we've seen generation the crisis that you've been facing on Main Street is now hitting Wall Street
7: let me tell you something that's going on today in our world particularly here in our nation that needs some shaking up and
6: some fixing
5: <laughs>
11: did she win a contest what what is it a call? you got to do some shaking up. I see what's happening here. It's an economic crisis, complicated issue. The solutions needed are probably unpopular, undoubtedly confusing. Perhaps it's time for a good old-fashioned candidate's generic off. Generic off, brought to you by soap and food. Food. It's what's for eating. The players flipped a coin to see who'd go first, but the coin was repossessed. What the heck? Let's hear from the junior senator from Illinois. We're going to get the economy back on track and our financial institutions back on track. <laughs> well in, sir. Forceful sounding, totally empty. Like a, a hollow pinata. Republicans, your response? We've got to fix it. We've got to fix it and we will. We must fix it. <laughs> we must use some sort of tool. An economic fixing tool that was made in America. McCain 08. <laughs> Joe Biden, you're in Michigan talking to auto workers. Give me a generic.
12: I'm a UAW guy, never belong to you, but I'm a United States senator because of the
2: UAW.
11: This is not a pander-off, this is a generic-off. Come on,
12: man, take another swing. I count John McCain as a personal friend. I don't doubt that John cares. He just doesn't think, he doesn't think that we have any responsibility to help people who are hurting. This is not a passive-aggressive-off. This is a generic-off.
11: John McCain is a good man. He's just a horrible human being. He's a brave, he's a brave soldier, uh, but a stupid idiot. He kills babies. I love him. He's terrible. This is a huge opening for the Republicans. Biden has abdicated the generic off. Let's hear from could possibly be President Palin.
6: This crisis happened for several reasons.
11: Whoa, whoa. This is a generic off. Reasons. That's dangerous territory. Tread carefully. I hope there are generic reasons.
6: Several reasons, which have to be addressed right
7: now.
11: You've given us a what and a when. Don't give us a how.
7: Guys and
6: gals, our regulatory system is outdated, and it needs a complete overhaul. Oh, guys and gals!
11: (laughs) Dudes and dames, don't pay any attention to what she said! Do not heed her call. She is not actually suggesting the government be responsible for regulating the financial markets in any way. Brohims and Bettys.
6: Our economy will grow and we will get government out of the way of private sector progress.
11: Great save. <laughs> she only got specific enough to completely contradict herself. We need more regulation. We need more regulations so that we can get government out of the economy (laughs) and then normal people's brains can explode (laughs) all right johnny McCainy, she set him up
12: mow him down still the fundamentals are of our economy are strong
11: no (laughs) that is generic but it's also wrong you're supposed to talk about crisis you know what's going to happen now oh in a few hours fundamentals
12: are of our economy are strong (laughs) fundamentals are of our economy
11: are strong don't you know the internet moves quickly now sir it looks like curtains for senator mccain but as in any generic off you get one last chance to go into the retraction chamber where you can either take back what you said about the fundamentals of our economy or fundamentally try to change the meaning of the word fundamental
12: I was talking about the fundamentals of America, which is the workers, their productivity, their innovation, their, uh, their incredible performance for many, many years. Sure you were.
11: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a winner. That was John McCain speaking from his new Circular Talk Express. <laughs> Whatever the shooter, the hip? felt like it is John McCain. He- John McCain is the only POW who was brainwashed after his captivity.
0: Similar to how the torture had been going on, and we knew about that, but we didn't know all of the details, it's kind of the same thing with the warrantless wiretapping. We knew what was going on, but we didn't know a lot of details, and it was in 2008 that some whistleblowers came forward and explained, at least to some degree, the the depths of the warrantless wiretapping and what was actually being heard on those calls.
2: So we were just telling you uh, about that ABC story that they broke uh, where they have two whistleblowers saying that, yes, we did in fact listen to Americans' private conversations, uh, including their phone sex uh, conversations. Brian Ross, I just wanted to see who the reporter was. Right. Uh, and uh, in fact, we have it for you here, uh, Brian Ross reporting on the story. Uh, the first person you're going to see is uh, one of the whistleblowers himself. Here we go.
13: Personal phone calls of American, officers. of American officers, mostly in the Green Zone, um, calling home to the United States, um, talking to their spouses and sometimes their their girlfriends. Sometimes on the same days. Sometimes one call, following another. And uh, coworkers of mine were uh, ordered to transcribe these calls.
3: David Murphy Falk was a Navy Arab linguist assigned to the NSA facility at Fort Gordon until a year ago.
13: And when. Uh one of my co-workers went to a supervisor and said, uh but sir, these are these are personal calls. Uh the supervisor said my orders were to transcribe everything.
7: We were listening to um, Iraq
3: those were the same orders Arab linguist Adrian Kinney says she got from her army commanders at the same NSA facility from two thousand one to two thousand three. Kinney says she listened to hundreds of Americans simply calling their families. Americans in the Middle East calling home.
11: Oh, most definitely. Like personal, private things with Americans who are not in any way, shape, or form associated with anything to do with terrorism. It was just um personal conversations that really nobody else should have been listening to. And you were. And we were.
3: But the law is very specific and President Bush has reassured Americans again and again.
12: It's a phone call of a Al Qaeda, known Al Qaeda suspect. Making a phone call into the United States.
11: I would say that that is um, completely a lie. I would call it a lie because um, we were definitely listening to Americans who had nothing to do with terrorism.
3: Kitty says she intercepted, recorded, and transcribed conversations with the military, journalists, and Red Cross and aid workers. Did you just pull the plug and say we shouldn't be listening to this? I wish that I had, but I didn't. And former intercept operator, Folk says some highly private calls were passed around like office jokes.
13: And at times when I was told, "Hey, uh, check this out. There's something really. Some good phone sex, or there's some uh, some uh, um, some pillow talk. Uh, pull up this this call. It's really funny. You'd go check it out." And, and you would listen. It was there, stored uh, the way you look at songs on your
3: iPod, that number would get passed around. If you listen to this call, you'll hear some phone sex, you hear some pillow talk. Right. And you did. Yes I did. How do you feel about that?
13: Uh I I, I feel it was something that the people should not have been doing, including me.
1: Yeah, to say the least. I uh, although I gotta be honest, there's a little priceless moment with uh Brian Ross. Uh huh. It's like so you heard some phone sex, some pillow talk. Some pillow talk. <laughs> <laughs> and you just get and then naturally you start thinking about Brian Ross having phone sex.
2: Well, oh, please stop. Well, you know what, honey? They...
1: What are you wearing? Some sort of blouse, <laughs> or is
2: it lingerie?
1: <laughs> is it lingerie? Is your head on the pillow? Because <laughs> <laughs> we're about to
2: do pillow talk. <laughs> uh, you know, the thing is, they probably have listened to Brian Ross because they didn't just listen. Yeah, to journalists.
1: That's the worst part. That's the scariest
5: part to me. It
2: wasn't just U.S. military. It wasn't just uh, human rights organizations, International Red Cross. It was also journalists and government officials. Now you think that the higher ups that authorize that, in fact, told that worker, hey, get back to work, don't question it, just listen. You think they didn't take some of the media calls and some of the government official calls and use that for political purposes? Well, if you think that at this point, then you're an absolute and positive sucker. You're the biggest sucker in the whole wide world. In fact, the whole country and the whole Congress is a bunch of suckers. Forever believing George Bush in the first place. Now, of course, there were some of us who didn't. Well, as soon as he came out and said, we're only listening to Al Qaeda. Well, if you will only listen to Al Qaeda, you can get the world's easiest warrant to do that. Imagine you go to a FISA judge and I'd like to listen to Al Qaeda. says, no. <laughs> yeah, no. <Okay. laughs> of course you can listen no, to we, Al Qaeda. We've
1: approved 99.8% of all your warrants, but I'm not persuaded on this one. Yeah, Bin Laden? Mm, what's al- I don't know. Al Qaeda? Well, I don't even know what
2: that is. Yeah, come back in a few weeks when you got more information. The whole point of this illegal wiretapping program was so that they could listen to American calls. Okay, was to listen so so they could listen to innocent people's calls. Because if they wanted to listen to suspects' calls, they can get a warrant as easy as anything you've ever seen in your entire life. That FISA court gave warrants a ninety-nine point eight percent of the time. They almost never rejected a warrant,
1: and they could do it. Retroactively, and if you'd gone to the Democrats and said uh, if they'd had any sort of uh, spine at all and said, "Hey, this three days where we can do it retroactively, we need more. We need two weeks retroactive." You know what they would have said? Fine. Well, Done. they said
2: fine on Pfizer No, we so, anyway.
1: No, right. so I know I'm just I, all I'm doing is making the point that if that was their concern, that could have been handled easily—an easy expansion of it, which would have made civil liberties people uncomfortable. But not apoplectic in the sense
2: that they would have just simply bypassed any sort of judicial review. See, this is the kind of story that makes me despair of the whole system, because I get that there are evil guys like Cheney that come in here and want to abuse their power and Nixon. It happens in a democracy; it's natural. In fact, we have a system built to be able to withstand such attacks against uh, a, a free country in our free form of government. Right. So I expect the Cheneys and the Nixons of the world, and the George W. Bushes. It's the rest of them that I'm so, uh, disturbed by. I mean, the Republican Party, uh, they've given up all pretense. They're 100% authoritarians. They're not conservatives. Real conservatives should be shocked by this. And some real conservatives, like Ron Paul and Bob Barr and Pat Buchanan, are shocked by. It. Okay? So, then you go to the Democrats. What a bunch of weaklings. How pathetic. They just rolled over on all of this. Not all. There were some great fighters like Senator Feingold who fought him tooth and nail all the way. But most of the Democrats bowed their heads and said, Yeah, go ahead, look at innocent Americans things. You want to record military guys having phone sex? Go ahead, do it all. And the media. They went along with the lies. <laughs> oh no no no, they're only listening to Al Qaeda people. Alright, well at least you gotta give ABC News credit here for breaking this story.
0: We have arrived at our next-to-last clip, but it's the last major issue we're going to deal with, and I think more than what is being said in this clip, it's important to notice what's not being said. That is to point out that the Republicans' obsession with voter purging predated their obsession with voter fraud. Personally, I think it's super obvious, using only contemporary news, to, to understand that Republicans' obsession with voter fraud is really just a cover-up for their desire to voter purge, but when you go back 10 years and you see that they were purging people before anyone mentioned anything about fraud, well, then what other conclusion could you draw?
6: yourself. We're about to take a step inside a small D democratic nightmare that also happens to be a big D democratic nightmare, a nightmare that actually happened at least once before in this country in the year 2000. Yes, I'm talking about the Florida election disaster that brought us the presidency of George W. Bush. This year, could it happen all over the country? Even if the polls don't shift much over the next two weeks, could Barack Obama end up losing the election by virtue of Republican efforts to prevent people from voting or from having their vote? Counted in 2000, the most obvious problems and villains were in Florida. This year, we may be seeing the effect of the worst practices of voter suppression, especially the purging of voters from voter rolls, being nationalized, systematically spread into many, many other states. Think back to that Bush v. Gore nightmare, and back to Katherine Harris, Florida's then Secretary of State. She's best known for stopping the recount. Less well remembered, however, is her removing 57,000 Florida voters from the rolls because their names. Sh- she thought were similar to those of people convicted of crimes. So what did America learn from Florida 2000 about partisan officials running the election business instead of nice bipartisan county election boards? Well not much, or way too much, depending on how you look at it. The Katherine Harris effect has caught on across the country thanks to the law intended to reform the system after the Florida fiasco, the Help America Vote Act. Partisan secretaries of state, not county election boards, thanks to HAVA, are now in charge of maintaining lists of voters. So that means would-be Catherine Harris's around the country get their chance to put their personal spins on how our elections are conducted and who gets to vote. In some states, that means wholesale voter purges. Leading the nation is the state of Colorado, with purge numbers that some experts estimate have been as high as 19% of all voters. A new article in Rolling Stone says that the woman most responsible for starting Colorado's purge binge is Colorado's former Republican Secretary of State, Donetta Davidson. For all that hard work kicking people off the voter rolls in her state, she got a promotion, a big one. President Bush appointed her to a federal board formed to help fix Florida-style election shenanigans. She's now in charge of showing secretaries of state across the country just how to maintain their lists of registered voters. Fox, meet Henhouse. These troubling stories are detailed in that Rolling, Ma- Rolling Stone magazine article I just referenced. It's in this week's issue. It is called Block the Vote, and it is mandatory reading for all Rachel Maddow Show viewers. Here to try to talk me down, the co-author of that article, Robert Kennedy, Jr. Bobby, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Um, in the interest of perhaps maybe talking, to me, down, talking me down about this, um, do you think that this election um, could be stolen and could, can, at this point, can it be stopped?
14: Well, as you pointed out, in in Colorado, which is a swing state, a crucial swing state that could be won or lost by a couple of thousand votes, 20,000 voters, 19.4% of the vote, uh, not 20,000, but almost 20% of the vote was purged by the former Secretary of State. The New York Times disclosed last week that since then, an additional 37,000 have been purged. And 6,400 new voters have been purged. So um, certainly those numbers are very significant. Those kind of numbers could affect an election. And what we see is that the purges disproportionately impact Democratic voters. The new voters are almost three to one Democratic in Colorado. So if you purge 6,400 new voters, you're getting rid of a substantial number of Democrats. And the algorithms that they use that are in what you call the Help America Vote Act, which incidentally was passed by the Republican Congress and the Republican Senate and the Republican President, but um, it was designed by, there were some Democrats involved in the original writing, but it was really hijacked by Bob Nay, Congressman Bob Nay, who's now in prison, and Jack Abramoff, who's now in prison, and it was, um, it's been used to erect a series of barriers that make it really an obstacle course. Particularly for um, for for African Americans to vote, uh, for Hispanics to vote, for young people and old people. Um, one of the requirements is a that is now spread through most of the states via HABA is identification requirements. Hmm. Now you may say, well, it's no problem. Every time I go to write a check, I show my ID. I show a government issued ID, and a driver's license. But in fact there's a lot of Americans who don't have driver's license. 1 in 10 American of uh, voter age do not have driver's license. Who are they? They're senior citizens, they're young people, they're people who live in cities and they're black people in other words democratic voters. 1 in 5 democratic 1 in 5 black voters does not have a driver's license. That means if you require a driver's license, you're getting rid of 20% of the black voters in this country. Um, there's other things that are now used also to purge mainly African American voters. In the last election in 2004, according to the United States Election Commission, there were a million black voters whose votes were not counted. 2.7 million Americans altogether, mainly Democrats, but a lot of them. A lot of these um, methods target African American voters. Um, another method that is being used that's probably the most frightening is called the perfect match type match. And what that says uh, is that if uh, if your registration, the information on your registration, the government agencies, the electoral officials in each state are required to check your registration information against existing government databases, your social security database and your driver's license database. If any of the information in some states, it's a perfect match is required. In swing states like Iowa and Florida, a perfect match is required.
6: Perfect match, so that means like middle initial hyphens everything. Exactly.
14: So if I wrote my name on my driver's license, Robert F. Kennedy, and I wrote on my registration to vote Robert Francis Kennedy, Jr., my my registration would be thrown out. And that's what the new Secretary of State of Colorado has done to these 6,400 new
6: voters who are, again, mainly Democratic. It's one thing to understand what these tactics are, and when you lay it out that way, it's very easy to see why they have chosen these, uh, uh, targeting new voters, tar- these ID requirements, this perfect match stuff, because obviously this sort of selects for likely Democratic voters to keep people away from the polls. It's one thing to know why it's happening and that it is happening. It's another well, thing know, to know
14: how to stop One of the it. things that you've talked about a lot on this show is the Bradley effect. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, probably the better, the best explanation about the Bradley effect which is really the difference between the the exit polls and the official tally that black voters, but really it's Democratic voters, receive less in the the official tally than they did in the exit poll. Hmm. But that's largely explained by the fact that after they vote, hundreds of thousands, in fact a million black voters are simply not counted. Um, The spoilage in black jurisdictions and brass black precincts, and this is according to the U.S. Election Commission, are nine times the spoilage in white precincts. That means ballots that cannot be counted by the machines. Why not? Because the black precincts receive the worst machines, the oldest, most antiquated. So nine times the number of blacks, votes, are simply thrown out. More blacks are also given provisional ballots, and a third of the provisional ballots are thrown out.
0: Now, for this last clip, this is after the election. Obama's been elected, but not yet inaugurated. And this is just a little bit of fun to send George W. out the door and also to remind us that conservatives and progressives have been living in very different worlds for a very long time.
2: Raker has a new blog out, and jr pointed it out to me. And I read the first couple of paragraphs, and I'm kind of bored by it. He talks about the seance comment that Obama made. Then he talks about how he talked to the president of Poland and there might have been a miscommunication about the missile defense system. And I'm like, okay, Snorfest, whatever, right? And then the final paragraph is a gem. Let me read it to you. Obama thinks he's a good talker, but he is often undisciplined when he speaks. He needs to understand as president, his words will be scrutinized and will have impact whether he intends it or not. So far, okay, that's a fair criticism from the left. I think Obama's a fairly excellent speaker, but he wants to criticize him when he has got doesn't have much. Okay, I understand. Here's where it gets fun. In this regard, President Bush is an excellent model. Not kidding here. Not kidding. I'm quoting verbatim here. Obama should take a lesson from his example. Bush never gets sloppy when he's speaking publicly. He's not joking, okay, and I am reading it verbatim. He chooses his words with care and precision, which is why his style sometimes seems halting. In the eight years he has been president, it is remarkable how few gaffes or verbal blunders he has committed. If Obama doesn't raise his standards, he will exceed Bush's total before he is inaugurated. Do I have to say anything more? That is unbelievable! Un- B- Obama will have more blunders before he's inaugurated than Bush had in eight years? Bush is an excellent model? He never gets sloppy? On which planet? On which planet? Are you freaking nuts? I'm gonna have to go to the audio bank here, man. Let's go crazy. I take your pick. I mean, come on. Budget man. I sent my budget man up to the kind who budget man? Oh, you got, you got a CIA man too, don't worry. Spent all the
12: time with the CIA man this morning, keep catching up on the events of the world.
2: Yeah, uh, CIA man, uh, you know.
12: You know, it, we used to think we were secure because of oceans and previous diplomacy. But we realized on September 11, 2001, that killers could destroy innocent life. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully there's an old saying in tennessee i know it's in texas probably in tennessee that says fool me once shame on shame on you it fooled me we can't get fooled again this man is a total idiot see without the tax relief package there would have been a deficit but there wouldn't have been the commiserate uh, the 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 kick to
2: our economy that occurred as a result of the tax relief. Uh I, let me quote Hinderaker again before I give you the last couple. President Bush is an excellent model on how to speak. Obama should take a lesson from his example. Bush never gets sloppy when he's speaking publicly.
12: The key for me is to keep expectations low. Uh, John, did you hear that? We got an issue in America. Too many good docs are getting out of business. Too many OBGYNs aren't able to practice their their
2: love with women all across this country Bush never gets sloppy I'll give you one last one
0: what do you think tribal sovereignty means in the tri- in the 21st century and how do we resolve conflicts between tribes in the federal and state governments yeah. Uh, yeah. tribal
12: sovereignty means that it's sovereign you're a you're a you've been given sovereignty and you're viewed as a sovereign entity. Okay. And therefore, the relationship between the federal government and tribes is one between sovereign entities.
2: John Hinderaker, I'm quoting him again. In the eight years he has been president, it is remarkable how few gaps or verbal blunders he has committed. These people don't live on the same planet as us. You think that's all? I got one more from Hinderaker. This was from earlier. This is recent. This is an earlier quote about Bush. It must be very strange to be President Bush, a man of extraordinary vision and brilliance approaching genius. He can't get anyone to notice. He's like a great painter or musician who's ahead of his time and who unveils one masterpiece after another to a reception that, when not bored, is hostile. I mean, so he, here's my question. How do you have a conversation with folks who don't reside on the same planet as you? In John Hindereaker's planet, George Bush is brilliant, bordering on genius. He's never made a verbal gaffe. He is the spokesperson for speaking eloquently, and that Barack Obama should learn from how George Bush speaks. Now, how am I going to have a conversation with this guy? It's not that John Hinderaker is stupid. Although I would be willing to entertain that argument, it's that he is not attached to the same reality that I am i I don't know how to converse with him. he's speaking Greek to me I'm like Bush he's like brilliant Obama blunder after blunder verbally okay I, we're not speaking the same language I don't know what to tell you I, good luck to you man on your planet is a scary place. the planet where George was a genius I don't want anywhere near that planet and john i got news for you neither does the rest of the country that's why george bush today stands as the most unpopular president in american history as long as we've been doing polling he now according to the last cnn poll is at a seventy six percent disapproval rating that is ten points higher than where nixon was when he left office in disgrace now but that's in my world maybe in your world richard nixon was a terrific president who served out his term and was one of the best presidents we ever had
0: And with that, we will conclude our look back at the year 2008. I hope you enjoyed not only taking a break from modern-day politics, but also learned a thing or two along the way. Of course, we'll be getting back to our regularly scheduled program next year which is just a couple of days away, so I'll see you there. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash Left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.